Hello, and welcome to The Ripple. My name is Jennifer Judkins, and I first want to start by saying how excited I am to share this podcast with you. There has been a lot of hard work to get this off the ground, and I'm glad you're joining us for the first episode. Now, let me tell you what this thing is. The Ripple is a forum for people to share their stories and experiences around September 11th, 2001. Each story from that day and time is important and deserves a platform, and that's what we do here. We make sure these stories are heard. Today's very first episode features Colleen Picconi, who if I hadn't met, I'm not sure this podcast would even be happening. On September 11th, 2001, I was scheduled to um, be in San Diego, California for work. I worked in Six World Trade Center in New York City, and I was scheduled to go out for the week to San Diego. So Sunday, I'm trying to think of the dates. Monday was the 10th, Tuesday was the 11th, and Monday happened to be my 36th birthday. I had to be in California for business on Tuesday the 11th. So I was trying to push back my flight to California as late as possible so I could enjoy my birthday in New York with my family, with my children. And uh, I changed my flight several times. Between the 10th and the 11th, I must have changed it three or four times. So uh, finally I leave early, early, early morning on the 11th. I can't remember what time. And I had a flight uh, out to San Diego. And I sat in the airport from late at night because I, ha- I couldn't get a ride out to the airport early, early in the morning on the 11th. So I had to get an airport, uh, a ride out to the airport sometime after 11 o'clock on the 10th. And I sat at the airport in the night waiting for my flight. And I remember sitting at Newark Airport and if you're familiar with Newark Airport, the terminals are glass looking towards Manhattan, and you can see a view of the skyline over the airfield, and it's quite beautiful at night. So I was sitting, waiting for my flight, and I believe there were some changes in the flight. I think I actually changed my flight again at the airport, because I was there for quite a while. And. I was looking at the skyline of Manhattan, and as people do on the eve of their birthday, I was contemplating life. And I was just turning an age where I was thinking about, you know, I follow history, I follow celebrity gossip. And I was thinking of all the people who hadn't made it to that age. I was thinking of Marilyn Monroe. Honestly, I was thinking of people who who had either sung their song by that age or hadn't sung their song by that age. And I know I felt like I hadn't sung my song yet, so I was just having good wishes for myself for the, for the year ahead. But I had a long time to think, and I, I remember very clearly contemplating this to the skyline of, of New York City. So I boarded my flight, we left, and um, very unexpectedly, the flight was grounded in Las Vegas. So I had no idea what was going on. Uh, the, the flight landed, I got off of the flight, and uh, I got, in those days I had a beeper. There were no cell phones, I don't think, at that time. I didn't have a cell phone at that time, but I had a beeper. And my brother paged me, and I called him back, 
And he said, all he said to me was, get a rental car. Something's going on in Manhattan. Get a rental car as quickly as possible. So I literally ran from the jetway to the rental agency, and they told me all the rental cars. There, there was nothing available. Did you see other people from the flights that were being grounded also heading over to the rental cars, or were people not yet informed of what was happening? I wasn't aware enough to know that there was a major incident happening. Mm. I just had this text, and I was following my brother's direction. I really was. I don't remember paying attention to what other people were doing. Mm. And I don't remember talking to anybody at that point about what was going on. So I said, um, I walked away from the rental counter and I was trying to think of what I can do. And my brother, I'm very close to, so I, I just knew that if he gave me this direction, I should follow the direction. So I went back and I said, I'm in law enforcement, I have to get to California, I need a car. So I pulled that <laughs> card, which I don't usually do. So they got me a car. So I got in, in the car, it was a minivan, and I said, well, what am I gonna do? And at this point, I had talked to people while I was renting the car, and I knew that there was an incident in New York, I knew it had to do with the World Trade Center. I had not heard anything on the radio, and I had not seen the TV yet. So it was exclusively word of mouth that I was hearing anything. And um, so I knew it was at the Trade Center, I didn't know the gravity of it, but I knew it was big. And I had tried to call home by that point, and I couldn't get through to anybody. And I couldn't get through to my office, I couldn't get through to my home. So I said, let me get to California. Because my priority was I had to really do something at work in California that if I didn't have a big excuse not to be there, I, it wouldn't have been good for me at work. So I said, let me get to um, San Diego, and then I'll figure out what to do from there. So I got a map, I got in the car, and I was driving from Las Vegas to San Diego, and uh, listen, I started listening to the radio. And the radio was, as you know, a blow-by-blow blow of everything that was happening. I mean, that was exclusively what was on the radio. And when I got in the car, the towers had not yet fallen. I specifically remember being in the car in the desert and hearing them say on the radio, the tower's falling. And it was so unimaginable to me to hear that because I had worked there for 11 years by that point, uh, going every day. My kids had been in daycare close to, to that time period. My you know, co-workers were there. A lot of friends were working in the World Trade Center complex or in the World Financial Center. So it was surreal. At this point in your trip, had you tried to reach anybody at your office to yes. see how they were or if you could reach anybody? Yes, I had. And I was not able to reach anybody at that point. So I heard the tower fell. I remember looking at the desert. I remember feeling very alone because I couldn't get in touch with anybody. And I remember thinking that tens of thousands of people must have died if the tower was falling. I couldn't imagine that that wouldn't be the case. I thought it would fall, you know, sort of 
not the way it collapsed upon itself, but would have tipped over and fallen that way. Um, I didn't even imagine at that point that both towers would have come down, but it was just all unimaginable. It was numbing. So um, I continued driving. I just didn't even know what to do, what else to do. And there was a point somewhere along that road. I don't know whether I stopped to call and I used a landline. I don't even remember if I had a cell phone at that time in 2001. I don't remember. But I eventually got in touch with my boss and I got in touch with my mom. And uh, my boss told me at some point before I got to San Diego that everybody in my office was okay. I worked, yeah, it was amazing. But we didn't work in the two towers. We worked in Six World Trade Center, which Mm -hmm. was attached to one. It had a common, you could go between the two buildings without going outside. Mm -hmm. There was an escalator from six down to one to the lobby of one. And, uh, you know, it was an area we all frequented. And so if anything happened to either tower, it was co-located with my building but my building was eight stories high it was built as the United States Custom House when the World Trade Center complex was built and we were the first tenants in it the federal government it was built for us and so there were other federal tenants the Secret Service was on the sixth floor I was on the seventh floor we were in a legal office I remember 732 I had my own private office looking out on West Street like many people who live out of their offices, I had a lot of personal items there, uh, which I thought about. I had, for instance, my two children's, their christening photos. So the only copies I had there with the negatives. So I don't have any copies of their christening, I uh, of their photographs from their christening. I had all my diplomas. I had all my awards from work. I had all my work product, you know, since the time I'd become an attorney. Um, but the, that was not the thought. That was a much sub- more subsequent thought well after. I mean, the thought was of the well-being of the people at that time. And my boss told me that I heard her version of events. She was there. And she was laughing at me because we had been there in 93 for the first bombing as well. And I think of all the people who worked in my building for both during both events 1993 and September 11th that I was the only one who was not at work for either of them so That's she said incredible. yeah she said you must have somebody watching over you yeah and why how did how is it that you happened to miss the first one the 93 the first one I had something very important to do at work and my mom called me my sister had a baby at that time my godson actually and he was sick and she's an eye surgeon, and she had to do surgery in Philly. And she couldn't change her surgery. So she said, you have to go babysit your nephew down in Philly. And I said, I can't. I have stuff to do at work. But as mothers often do, she nagged me and nagged me and nagged me. So I took the day off, and I went down, and I babysat my oh, nephew. Oh, what a day and to I take wasn't off. At work. I wasn't at work that day either. And that's actually, I, I drove in at the time, and that bomb was near um, where our cars were parked. My boss's car was destroyed at that time and then it was also destroyed in her another car in in 9-11 because the garage was below our building as well so yeah so all of our employees were okay it was pretty miraculous it was pretty miraculous but of course the growing up in New York City 
living in Staten Island, it affected our, our community tremendously. So I lost a friend from high school. You know, people lost, you know, through one or two degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. There were many, many, many losses yeah. for most people in, that lived in the five boroughs. Yes. You eventually did get to San Diego. Yes. And what happened once you arrived there? I arrived in San Diego. I checked into the hotel. And it's funny because I ran into a very good friend of mine who happens to ultimately be very high in Homeland Security. And I said, what's going on? And he goes, he worked out at JFK at the time. And he said, well, it, it all happened in Manhattan. I don't think it's going to affect JFK, so I'm going to stay here for the week. <laughs> so it's funny to think back to people's recollections because in my world, working for customs, we ultimately were subsumed into the Department of Homeland Security in 2003. And the reaction to 9-11 set the trajectory for the rest of all of our careers because our mission then shifted from duty collection, revenue collection, to, you know, for duties, to um, preventing terrorism mm-hmm. and weapons of terror from enter- entering the country. So our jobs completely changed. Completely. Uh, although we did border enforcement at that time, you know, guns, drugs, and money, now we do terrorism, guns, drugs, and money, that kind of stuff. So yeah. it, it, really, um, it really changed a lot. But he was, he was the first person I saw that day. <laughs> so I said, well, he's not too concerned. And then I went up to my room. I, t- I checked in, I went up to my room, and I sat down on the edge of the bed, and I looked at the TV, and that's the first time that I saw the visual. So I was probably one of the last people on the planet to see the visual, because it was late at night. And um, I just sat there and watched it. And you just see the, you know, the, the loop of yeah, the towers falling and yeah. falling and falling and falling. And I, I just started calling people. So I spent the rest of the night on the phone and trying to figure out what I was going to do. But I couldn't stay in California, you know, for what I had to do. So I had to get back home. I tried to get plane reservation. There were planes were all grounded, so there were no planes going anywhere. Trains were either booked or not going. I don't remember what the immediate reaction was, whether they ceased trains. Everything was booked if it was available or or, or the, the, it was just wasn't going. But I had the car, thanks to my brother. So the next morning I got up. So that was Wednesday morning. I got up super early, and I said I'm going to drive home. And I drove from San Diego to New York City. I left Wednesday morning. I got back Friday evening. I drove the whole way cross-country myself. Did you stop at all to rest or...? I stopped the two nights, and I slept for about four hours each night. And there were so many people doing the same trip as me to get back to New York that I, each of those two nights I had to stop at three or four hotels to get a hotel that had availability. And I remember the gas prices, they were gouging the gas prices. It was really high, you know, like $8, $9 a gallon to, wow. to fill up because people were desperate to get back to New York. It. Everybody yeah. was doing it. And how old were your kids at the time? They were little. One was, I think, six and one was seven. Mm. So they were little. They had no context for what had happened. It was really interesting. This weekend I saw the movie The Room. Yeah. And so that is about a five-year-old boy and his perspective 
on a unique upbringing that he had. Yes. And then just go to go back to that mentality of a five-year-old or a six-year-old in that in that age range and think about what my kids experienced at the time because it was, you know, it was huge. Everybody talked about it for a long time. You know, they were released from school. It was all that was on the news. It affected everybody. It affected everybody and everything. So, you know, they're children of that age. And I don't think they'll be able to say till they're well into their adult years how it impacted them. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's one of those things that takes a really long time for you to understand how it impacted you. I still ask myself the question how it impacted me because I don't know that I can absorb the whole thing. And I'm not even in the stratification. You know, there's a stratification of people who were affected. There's people who, you know, were far away and heard it on the news. And there were people you know that's contrasted on the other end of the spectrum with people who lost their own lives right and then next people who lost a loved one and then the first responders and then people who were present in New York City at the time or present at the World Trade Center right. and escaped the building and then I'm more remote than that in that I worked there for a long time I had mere property loss which was nothing comparatively and then but it 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 profoundly changed my world, my home, where I live, and my work. Um, and I'll be interested to hear when I'm 60 and 70 and 80 and 90, hopefully, how my thoughts develop about it. So when you got back on Friday, you got here at night and you went straight to your house and saw your kids. What did you do after that? I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to friends and family. Um, My my daughter hadn't spoken the whole time I was away. Her dad was in Spain and couldn't get back on September 11th. And I, um, I wasn't home. So she had a babysitter really with her. And the neighborhood was up in arms, you know, thinking on Staten Island there was a rumor that the bridges might blow up and there was no school. So she was she was really terrified. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever talked to her about it, but she was really terrified, as was my son, who is, is a year older than her. But she was more, um, well, the symptom was she really didn't talk. That's what the babysitter was telling me over that time. She really didn't talk. So... Um, one of the people that I spoke to was a federal agent who, at the time, I was very close with. Her name was Darlene Line. She was working on the pile from the whole week. She was working here. Everybody was in disbelief. So she said, do you want to come up and see it? And she had access because they had a perimeter around Six World Trade Center at the time because um, in our basement we had storage lockers for all the seized contraband that we seized at the border at JFK or at Newark airports. So there was a lot of drugs there, a lot of drugs. There was a lot of money there. There was a lot of uh, ammunition there. And ammunition, there was a firing range for the federal agents, so there was a lot of ammunition. And the pile was on fire, so the ammunition was sort of going off. So... They were securing the perimeter. They were part of the team that was there. So she said, if you want to come up and just see, 
So I By talked... security securing the perimeter, is that um, in a way to protect the people that are working on the pile that don't know it's in the basement? That was one of the reasons. And also in the event of, you know, if you have pounds, you know, hundreds of pounds or right. kilos of drugs too, right. you know, anybody could walk off with that. And, you know, so there was criminality to it. And it was also anything that was seized was evidence in ongoing criminal cases. So if anything, if it could be preserved, the choice would be to preserve it, obviously. So there were multiple reasons why they were there. And then to assist with rescue efforts, recovery efforts, and all of that. So on the Saturday and the Sunday, I went the Saturday. Um, I came into Manhattan. She gave me a hard hat and a a raid jacket. And my boss, who lived in Manhattan, also came. And we walked around. We walked around um, the burning pile. And the air was very acrid and thick with um, with dust and smoke. And we had masks on, but it still penetrated. I mean, it was, it was filthy. And um, so I walked around the perimeter of the two towers and six World Trade Center. I don't think I went on West Street. I don't think I could get over to West Street, but I was on the other side, on the east side of the towers, um, where you know as close to the rubble as you could get. And so it came Saturday, and then I um, thought of a lot of work events we have and things. So I do. I work with glass. I work with stained glass. So I said to her, can I come back Sunday? Because I brought a knapsack with me. And I said, I just want to try and get some glass rubble and pieces. And over the years, I've incorporated them into retirement gifts for people or um, commemorative uh, desk pieces for people who have worked in the arena of Homeland Security. And, and or people who were in my office at the time, people who were in the World Trade Center from my office, I made them each a piece for their desk from pieces of rubble from our building. So that was it. I just, uh, those were the only two occasions that I was close to it. And then what did your office do after that? How did, did you just all stop working altogether or... Did you remote in? What was the plan for continuation of work? There wasn't um, much possibility of remote at that time because of the technology as compared to now. However, we relocated to JFK Airport. And so I drove out there for work until within about a month, they had us uh, a lease for us in uh, One Penn Plaza on 34th Street. We moved into there. And then we did three moves in that building while they built out our space. And then we were there on 34th Street until uh, earlier this year when we moved here into One World Trade Center, which is built on the foundation of Six World Trade Center. Which is amazing. It's amazing. It's bizarre. You've never left this spot. I've never left this spot. Now you work in One World Trade Mm -hmm. on the same foundation as your old office. Yes. Just a couple floors higher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From 7 to 50. <laughs> 7 to 50, which is where we are recording today. Yes. Um, do you stay in contact with 
Well, first, let me back up. Do you still work with any of the people that you worked with before the towers fell? Yes. About about six people on my staff were there the day the towers fell. And uh, we had a ribbon-cutting ceremony when we moved here in February. And uh, they spoke to it. I recorded them after 9-11. I recorded most of them um, as to what happened that day. And we also gave people the option when we came here if they didn't want to come. Nobody had to be forced to return to the World Trade Center. So for all of my agency's employees that came here, about 25% opted not to return to the World Trade Center. And they were allowed to do that. So they were just relocated to other federal office space in the uh, area. But from my office and my staff, everybody came back. Can you just tell me what your position was at the time um, in Six World Trade, what your job title was? At the time of 9-11, my job title was Deputy Associate um, Chief Counsel for the United States Customs Service for New York. So that means I was a manager, I was a legal manager of the legal office for the federal agency, the United States Customs Service, and we give legal advice to the Northeast U.S. on border issues. And how long had you held that position for? Since 1998. I wanted to ask you a question about health, because a lot of people since September 11th have become really sick with lots of different things, Um, you know, tumors in their necks, rare cancers, common cancers, lung issues, heart issues. Um, And I know that you weren't here for an extensive period of time in the beginning, but from what I'm hearing, a lot of the worst illnesses really came out of that first seven to 15 days. Um, Did you experience anything yourself after visiting the pile in those early days? I didn't experience anything right away, but in uh, early 2004, I woke up one day and I was um, completely numb from the waist down. It was terrifying. And my dad is a surgeon. I called him and came to see me. And he was terrified because that can be an indicator of a lot of really bad neurological stuff. So I went through a tremendous amount of testing, probably over $150,000 worth of testing, mostly starting with like MS. I said MS. I had scans. I had electrical impulse tests. I had blood tests. I had pretty much every test (laughs) possible. And And during this time, are you mobile via wheelchair, or how are you getting around? I could still walk, but I couldn't feel anything. So it was really bizarre. Sometimes you may hear people with diabetic neuropathy, they can't feel their feet, and it affects them. My dad had that. And he probably told you. It's very disconcerting. Mm -hmm. So I was mobile, but I just couldn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it profoundly affects you. And it's terrifying to have the the testing because you're just looking at somebody who's, you know, taking the MRI of you, you know, afterwards to try and get an indication, you know, did they see something? Is it it something chronic? What is it going to be? But after about six months of testing, 
Um, they said to me, it's idiopathic, which basically means they don't know what the root of it was. And they told me there's nothing they could do. And ultimately, my dad took me to uh, an elderly neurologist, and she told me, she was from Asia, and she said, the nerves are very, very slow healing. Something happened to your nerves that um, they were destroyed, you know, nerve, nerve endings that affected your ability to feel from the waist down. And she, she said to try eating a lot of root vegetables. So I literally had turnips and carrots and beets, any kind of root vegetables every day. I had them in a juice form. And believe it or not, within a year, I completely healed. I have no idea what caused it. I don't know at all if it was related to anything that happened in the week after 9-11. But it has crossed my mind. And I don't know that I'll ever have an answer to that. I just thank God that it it went away. Although I do have some weird neurological things that happen sometimes, like my eyebrow will go numb on one side, or my eye will get very tired on one side, um, or I'll get a tiny bit of numbness here or there. But I've continued to have testing, and they don't know what the root of it is. The two towers, everything was atomized. Everything that was used to build them, all the people that were in them, every desk and telephone, it was just atomized. And so all those part, that particulate was in the air. Plus, all kinds of things were burning. It's true. It's even interesting to think when you visit the memorial now and go down to the museum um, the kind of items that they have down there essentially are building and bone of humans just compacted together and I wonder if many people realize that when they're seeing it because it's not described like that you know it's described as these are six floors that have all fallen on top of each other and fused together to make this giant pile but there were people on those floors, most likely, when it fused into that giant piece of metal that is now on display in a museum. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really is. There's a lot we don't know. And it's very interesting, because some of those guys are not sick at all. But then the guy who stood next to them is very sick. It's very, and why? It's very interesting how that panned out in the end for everybody. And, it, and sometimes they'll tell you that, no, they didn't have a mask on to cover their mouth, and neither did the guy next to him, but then why did one of them get a rare throat cancer? And the other one's fine and playing with his grandkids. And a lot of people have the same cancers, which is also very interesting. I think that it, it probably had much more of a profound health impact than we'll ever realize. I know, I don't know how you would really figure out what the full impact of, of it was. It would be impossible. I think it's impossible. Thank you. You're really great at speaking about your experience. Thanks for listening to episode one. I just wanted to say some quick thank yous to all the people who helped make this possible. Daniel Broadhurst, the editor of The Ripple. You can find out more about Daniel on our website, therippledpodcast.com industrial color jamie guay for the beautiful website sean mann for his musical genius nina alexander sarah kuno savannah nolan kit tyson and ellie bronson for all the support 
And of course, a huge thanks to Colleen for sharing her story and bringing this episode life. If you have a story to share, you can reach me at theripplepodcast.com. See you at episode two.